This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. For more information, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. Land prices in China have been rising very rapidly. The growth has been as high as 16% per annum over eight years. This has been caused by both demand and supply factors. While it's not realistic for this rate to continue, don't expect a slump either, says Wharton real estate professor Joseph Jerko. Jerko, along with colleagues at the National University of Singapore and Tsinghua University in China, have been studying the China housing market for some time now. It's not easy because data is difficult to come by, but the team has put together an index of housing land prices in China and is now planning a second phase to the research. We are speaking today with uh, Professor Joe Jerko of the Wharton Real Estate Department. Uh, Joe, thank you very much for joining us today. It's a pleasure to be here. So you uh, uh, have collaborated with your colleagues at the National uh, University of Singapore and Tsinghua University in China on a really pioneering project uh, uh, where Wharton uh, worked with these other universities uh, to create indices of housing land prices in China. Uh, could you begin by telling us what are some of the most significant takeaways? Sure, sure. And these are real price indexes for land values in China, not housing, but the land underneath the housing. Um, the takeaways are as follows. Number one, at a national level, there has been remarkably strong price growth in land values. It works out, we have eight years of data from 2004 through the first half of 2013, and the average annual compounded price growth is just over 16% per year. So that's really a strikingly large number, um, and that's the aggregate over all of China. There is a lot of variation um, across regions and cities, however. In that sense, China's somewhat like the United States. It's a very big country, and you do not get the same price growth everywhere. At the city level, Beijing has been growing astronomically strong, 22% um, average annual compound growth rate since 2004. Markets like Xi'an, very, very different four to eight percent in some of the central and western cities of the country. So it's not, one size does not fit all in Chinese land markets. So as you looked at all the data, what was the biggest surprise for you? I, I'm not so sure I was surprised by, I expected high price growth rates. Um, one of the things that's clear is you can't continue to have 16 percent per annum growth because prices will go to infinity fairly quickly um, if you have another decade of that. Um, but I don't know that I was surprised by that. I, I think what I probably surprised me most is how varied the results are across cities. Right. Now, what implications would you say uh, do your findings have for international residential developers who may be interested in opportunities in China? I think you have to be worried about how high the price growth has been in the past, and you have to carefully consider how long you think it can continue at its present very high trend rate um, into the future. You, you just have to be cautious. This is not advice that 
there's an obvious bubble, that there's going to be a crash, because I don't know that for sure. What I think I do know for sure is I will be very, very surprised if we have another eight years of 16% per annum compounded growth. I'd like to come back a little later to the 16% number, uh, which I think works out to almost 200% over the course of your study. Correct. Uh, but, but for now, you know, just to set the background, uh, can you help explain for our audience a little bit about how China's land market differs from uh, the market in other countries? And what challenges did that pose for you as you went about your research? Sure. China's really very unique in this sense. If you study and look at housing prices across the world, including in the United States, you never see land values. You don't see vacant land being sold in the data. So what you see are house prices, which the price of my house or your house in a price index is the sum of the land value and the improvements, the building itself. China's different. The Communist Party of China owns all the land in urban areas, the local governments do. So if you're a developer, Mukul, and you want to put up a private residential complex, you have to purchase the land from the local government. And what you purchase is actually a land lease. You purchase the rights to use the land for up to 70 years in residential, for residential development, which is what our index is all about. We only cover land sales that are going to be used for residential development, not other commercial development. So the prices we're reporting and the indexes we're reporting are technically those for leasehold estates. Now, the way it works in China is the developer makes a one-time lump sum payment for the use rights of up to 70 years, and we treat that one-time payment as the sales price. Now, we, we think that's a pretty reasonable assumption, largely because the usage rights are for multiple decades, and as many of the listeners here will recognize the present value of anything 50 to 70 years from now is pretty close to zero, so we think that's a good assumption now. In 25 years, that may not be such a good assumption because you may be near the end of some of these uses, right? But that's what makes it very, very different in China. China's virtually unique, as far as I can tell, in that respect. And, and, and what challenges did that pose as you went about your research? Well, there were many challenges. One is data accumulation in China is very, very difficult. Um, in, I'm, I'm sure the government, the central government, has much data that they don't release and aren't going to release to academics like me or my co-authors. Um, so what we did was to essentially scrape the websites of the local land use authorities. There was a national law passed more well over a decade ago that required the posting of the winning bidders in land auctions. So, and it also required that the land be transacted by a visible auction. It was an anti-corruption move. As you can imagine, before this law came into being, there could be all types of side payments between developers and local officials. So we have a number of people who literally scraped the websites of the 35 local land authorities from whom we collect data. Um, and you might imagine a bunch of students, graduate students and undergrads, particularly in Beijing, who are cleaning the data and making sure it makes sense. Right. 
So let, let's come back now to, to the question of the rate of growth. I mean, as you said, 16% a year, 200% uh, over the course of, the, of, of eight years. Um, just to put those numbers in perspective, do we know how those kinds of price increases compare to housing land price increases in other countries? And what are some of the factors driving that increase in China? We cannot directly compare them to land prices in other countries simply because we do not see land value measured consistently in other countries. Couple of comments, though, on this. One, in an eight-year period for prices to go up 200 percent is really quite extraordinary, very extraordinary. It's much higher than the government's published data on housing prices, which leads me to believe they're really understating the house price rises um, because land's got to be a big component of value in China. That's number one. So it's got to be high. The other thing, if you go to my website and download the data, which, by the way, everyone can do just on, on my website, we, we welcome people to look at and study and use the data as they will, you will see a couple of different periods. In other words, this 16% figure you and I have been discussing, it's not a smooth rise up. So just uh, I, I wrote down a couple of notes. The first really big increase in aggregate land values in China occurred in 2007. Literally in three quarters, from the first to third quarter of 2007, real land values in aggregate across the 35 cities we're tracking rose 71 percent just in that nine-month period. Now, following that dramatic rise, real prices fell 34 percent until the first quarter of 2009. And then you ask about the factors driving some of this series. From 2009 to the end of 2010, prices more than doubled. They went up 108%, according to our index, in real terms. That period coincides with the great Chinese stimulus. So it's pretty clear there are a number of drivers. Some of this is government policy related, but some of it is clearly demand side related, which is there is an incredible move from rural areas into urban areas in China. So demand is very, very strong. And in some of these areas, although this is a subject of future research, um, it's unclear how much new supply is actually being created. The, my two co-authors and I are working on a project to measure supply um, in these markets now, so I'll have more to say on that you know, sometime next year, hopefully. But clearly, there's a lot of demand. But you look at these data in the series, government policy matters in China. It matters a lot to their local land markets. Uh, no, I, I think that sounds uh, very reasonable. Apart from the stimulus, uh, did you see any other political factors at work? Um, only not in our indexes. So the indexes are just created from the data. When you look at the nature of how households in China think about owning, um, many of them pretty clearly view it as a store of value um, in a way that you and I don't in the United States, which is my house... I, I own a home because it provides shelter for me and my family. My kids get to go to the school district in which my house is located and the, and the like. In China, investment restrictions are, are much more severe than they are in the U.S. Um, the typical household there could not diversify by buying the S&P 
index and the like. So for them, a lot of households, I think, pretty clearly are buying because they view this as a good store of value, a hedge, uh, and, and the like. So there are different motivations in China than there are for most U.S. households in particular. I see. Uh, you also referred to earlier the fact that uh, house prices in Beijing, uh, in, uh, in the Beijing area, uh, land prices, land prices in, in yeah. the Beijing area increased much faster than other parts of the country. Correct. Now, what explains some of these regional variations? I, I think a couple of things. One, we do know that demand growth, that is, in migration to Beijing and particularly some of the East Coast cities, is very, very strong. So partly it's demand. What I also suspect but don't know, and again, this is the future research, is that it's probably harder to build in some of these coastal markets. But we actually don't have good measures yet about how much new supply is coming on in each of these markets. But like I said, hopefully at a future date, you'll have me back for another interview and we'll be able to say something about that. My economics gut is it's both supply and demand. We can pin down demand. We can't yet pin down the contribution of the supply side to that remarkable growth. Right. Now, one really fascinating phenomenon in China's housing market that I've heard people talk about is that developers acquire land from the government, as you explained. Right. And then they just go ahead and build without really estimating what the real demand is uh, from consumers. And this has led to the creation of these so-called ghost cities with a lot of houses with no one living in them. Uh, did, this, did you take some of these factors into account? And, 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 and what do you think of this uh, phenomenon? One, it, the phenomenon definitely exists. You can see it documented. There are news teams that show you these ghost cities. But in the 35 markets we covered, there aren't ghost cities per se in these, in these markets. So we're looking at, believe it or not, China has well over 100, I believe, cities or urban areas with more than a million people. We're looking at 35 large ones. The ghost cities phenomena is not a major issue in in them. You don't see entire developments or swaths of Beijing, for instance, that are vacant. So that's, while that phenomena clearly exists in some parts of China, it tends to be in outlying areas and not in the major markets. So in other words, it didn't affect your data and didn't have an impact on No, we don't, we don't really see that phenomena a lot. We're looking and trying to measure vacancy rates. Believe it or not, there's no published vacancy rate series in China. It's one of the things we're trying to do in current research. We've looked first at Beijing. There's not a lot of vacancy in, in Beijing. In other words, it doesn't look like there are just ghosts developments throughout that city at all. Now, maybe we'll see them in some of the other 34 markets that we track, but thus far we, we just don't see that in the markets we're tracking. Did you find any evidence of a land bubble in China? Well, I, I, I don't know what a bubble is per se. I find it, I, I don't believe you can have another eight years of 16% per annum growth. Does that mean it's a bubble? I don't know. It means prices are very high. Um, they're high relative to incomes of the people buying the housing units that the developers are putting up on these plots of land. So 
I'm a firm believer you cannot have this level, this trend rate of growth continuing. I don't know whether it's a bubble. It's back to my advice to developers and investors. You have to be very cautious. Look at the local demand and supply fundamentals. I think there are some markets where they clearly still make very good sense and others where I'd be really worried um, about the sustainability. As you look to the future, what impact do you think that the economic slowdown that we see these days in China uh, that could have on land prices? Well, I, again, it's going to come through both supply and, and demand. I'd be more worried about supply effects, that is, developers not cutting back sufficiently on development to accommodate the lower trend growth rate. I, I suspect there's going to still be rural in-migration into urban areas in China because the income differences between a factory job in Wuhan or Chengdu even off the coast and being a, you know, a, a farmer are very, very high, and you're going to see that movement. The question is, as the trend growth rate in China slows, will you see development slow enough to accommodate it? So I think the biggest risk will be from oversupply um, in markets. And like I said, that we, we don't have good measures of oversupply yet, although that's something we all need to be thinking about going forward. Uh, you spoke earlier about uh, some future research. Uh, what's the next phase of your study going to be, and, and what, what are you looking at next in China? So a couple of things. One, we will continue to update the indexes. Every quarter, we'll update the national index. The city and regional indexes only come out every six months or every year. That has to do with data availability issues. Um, so that's one. We'll continue to update this. And number two, near to my heart and to all of our, the whole research team, is trying to get a handle on how much new supply has been created and how much you need, given that it looks like demand growth, while still going to be substantially positive in China, China's not going to go negative, but the difference between 7 to 8 percent growth and 12 percent growth is a lot. So the, the next big project is what has to happen to supply to make the market stay sane or be sane in a world where trend demand growth is 50 to 60 percent of what it used to be. And uh, in conclusion, Joe, this, <clears throat> if, you, if, if there were some CEOs of international real estate companies who asked for your advice about China uh, and, and uh, the land market there, uh, what would you tell them? Well, I tell Based them what you have learned so far. Well, one, just be very careful. Um, the data in China are hard to come by, and it's hard to create. Stuff. So make sure you're looking at real data and good data, and then you know just be realistic on what you think demand growth is going to be, and as carefully as you can, try to measure the supply competition, because one of the things we learned in the U.S. is that supply matters, not just demand. Got. It. Joe, thank you so much for speaking with Knowledge at Wharton. My pleasure. Thank you. For more business news and analysis from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.